Let's pray together and let's hear what God has to say to us in Mark chapter 2 and 3. Lord, you're the great physician and you're the great provider. You are Lord of lords, King of kings. And you created all things. And we live in a world that you said we must rest within. You even rested. So Lord, as we walk through this passage in scripture that is countering something that hobbles or that paralyzes or that puts people in bondage, help us see where that might be true in our own lives so that we are set free to be in relationship with you and not bound to the rules of legalistic religion. Lord, this is your message for us, not my message for them. So whatever you want to say, say it. But say it to me too. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just a quick reminder on the gospel according to Mark. I know we, we started it and then it was interrupted because Pastor Todd was here last week. And by the way, that was awesome. Um, Todd uh, Vinek is one of the few people that when, they, when Kurt or someone else says, hey, um, can we get them in here sometime? I'm like, well, after this series, but, but with Todd, yes. When can he come? Because we're always encouraged. He always says nice things about me, which just makes me a little uncomfortable, but I, 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 apparently I like that. Um, uh, but just a reminder on Mark, Mark is the shortest, the earliest and the shortest of the four gospels. And it's the gospel that Luke and Matthew used as their template. Now they added some things. They decided that when Mark wrote it, everyone should have known all the background stuff. And when Matthew and Luke wrote their gospels, the generation was starting to die out and people needed to know more like the virgin birth or the, the temptations of Jesus by the devil in the desert. Um, Mark, he didn't, he didn't get I don't want to say distracted. He didn't think that was necessary. So he doesn't spend much time on the infancy narrative of Jesus. He doesn't spend much time on the temptations. And he doesn't even spend much time on John the baptizer. Um, he, he mentions those things, but then he goes right into the mission of Jesus. And the mission of Jesus, after he's baptized and te tempted, he immediately he comes, uh, he walks along the Sea of Galilee and he sees a couple of guys out there and he says, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And th just that little phrase is a claim of divinity because most rabbis would call someone and say, hey, you need to follow God. And if, if you come with me, I'll show you how to follow God. But Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And this isn't like my grandma used to say, monkey see, monkey do kind of a thing. It's not a, it's not a deal where you're going to, I'm going to show you what to do and you're just going to mimic me and do it. And, 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 and then you'll be all good. He's saying, I'm going to destroy your life in a glorious way to these disciples. I'm going to destroy it. You're going to become a new person. You're going to have a new spirit. You're going to have a new character and you're going to do supernatural things that you never dreamed of. It will be nothing like you ever dreamed. I'm going to transform your life and I'm going to teach you how to destroy and transform the lives of others in a glorious way. So it starts off, I mean, he's Rambo. It's just boom. And then he takes, he starts taking on every power that, that in, in, in our world that hobbles paralyzes or places in bondage humanity. You see it right away. There's an evil spirit that shows up. I mean, no one would argue that, that have someone in a church having an evil spirit is a good thing. It's evil. And so he takes that on. He casts it out. Um, he tells it to be quiet and the demon gets it right. He knows who Jesus is, sends him out. And then Jesus heals all kinds of people, including Peter's mother-in-law who um, had a fever and a fever was seen as his own disease. And, uh, and it was either a judgment from God or a curse from the 
enemy. So he takes on both God's judgment, so to speak, and curses. He takes on uh, a, a, a man with leprosy, an incurable disease. It was almost a plague in the Middle East at that time. And, and he loved him, touched him, and made him well. And then immediately after that, he, he healed a guy who had a severed spinal column. This guy, I know they were teenagers because um, these four friends bring, a, bring their buddy over uh, to where Jesus is preaching inside of a house and they dig through the roof. They have no concern about if his insurance is going to cover that or not. So they've got to be teenagers because anything for a friend, they drop him down and Jesus looks up and saw their faith and says to him, your sins are forgiven. And everyone starts getting upset. The religious people are like, you can't forgive. Only God can forgive sins. And he goes, you know what? Which is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up, pick up your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, young man, get up, pick up your mat, go home. And the reason we know it was a severed spinal column is because he's called a paralytic, waist down. In John 5, it's an invalid. That's more like I was on Tuesday or Wednesday of this past week, almost unable to move. That guy was bedridden, but it was because of disease or injury, but not a severed spinal column. So here's Jesus who sees things that literally paralyze people, that literally place people in bondage, that make them unable to function the way God intended it to function. The humanity is supposed to be in a walking, talking, knowing, and loving relationship with the God of the universe. There's not supposed to be any disease, any hurt, any hatred, any power struggles. It's supposed to be shalom, peace. That is how he intended it. That is plan A, and there is no plan B. Jesus shows up to counter every power that would hobble humanity. And in chapter two, that early in the gospel, the thing, one of the things he takes on, one of the things that hobbles humanity, one of the things that paralyzes, one of the things that puts people in a prison of their own making is legalistic religion. And he, he counters that with two arguments or discussions or discoveries surrounding the Sabbath. So I'll talk to you more about why the Sabbath in a minute, why rest, but I want you to see kind of the spirit of Jesus and the spirit of the Pharisees. Now before, it is very easy as a preacher to demonize the Pharisees. It, in fact, it's, it's extraordinarily easy. It would be, it, you can caricature them and make, but I want you to know something about the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed they were right. They, were, they, they believed so much that they were right that they were willing to plot murder against Jesus because they thought that he was evil. They were so convinced that they were right that he couldn't be. So, and they were the people that tried to help the folks, the religious folks, not only worship God in their mind and not only obey the law in their mind, but obey the law day to day as a way of saying, to, to, a way of appeasing God, a way of showing God how holy you are. So it wasn't just uh, week to week or the seven festivals of the year or the, or the Sabbath year every seven years or the Jubilee year every seventh, seventh year, um, but day to day, hour by hour, minute by minute, they had created this system of how to be faithful to God. And Jesus, when he comes in contact with that, he counters it because they've taken not the spirit that, Jesus, that, that, that God commanded, but they've taken something that was supposed to tell the world how much better it is to live under the, under the umbrella of God. And they've taken that and they said, no, it's because we're special. God loves us more and he does not love you. And we're gonna separate ourselves from you. That is not God's intent. It reads like this. One Sabbath, that was a Saturday back then, 
One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to them, look, why are, you, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And by the way, it's not unlawful. It, it was set up. It was known. You couldn't take a sickle and harvest someone else's crop. But if you're walking down the way and you're a little hungry, you can pick the grains. Of, you know, you could take an apricot off or a, or a fig off of here. Um, when when I was growing up next door, we had Billy Kosky. She was our neighbor lady next door. And, and she had a crabapple tree that made pretty big. I mean, sometimes crabapples are nasty and little, but these are pretty good size. And they were just tart enough that it made you kind of go like that, but they were just sweet enough that you wanted it. Um, and we were not allowed to, um, yeah, what we weren't allowed to do is to pick up the ones that had gotten mushy on the ground and throw them at the cars at the intersection right across from East Grand Rapids Middle School. We weren't allowed to do that. That was not, that was not, we found that out. That was not acceptable. Um, but what she was okay with is if we every now and then, if someone had fallen on the ground or if there was one that looked right for the picking, we could pick it and you wipe it on your shirt like you see the boys in the old Western shows and, and we could eat it as we, she was fine with that. And she would take, you know, she would harvest them and she'd make some jam or some pie or something like that with them. But, but it was okay with her if we took something, if we did it appropriately. Same was true back then. You could walk through a grain field if you're traveling and you could pick the heads off the grain. In fact, you're supposed to leave the corners of your fields for the poor and you don't harvest those as a farmer. You leave that there so that, so that others are sustained who can't sustain themselves. But on the Sabbath, why is that different? Jesus answered, have you never heard or have you never read that Dave, what David did when, when he was with his companions and were hungry and in need in the days of Abiathar, the high priest? He entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. <laughs> Fighting words, just telling you, so you know. You don't tell someone, a Pharisee, that you are Lord of the Sabbath. And you don't tell them that they got Sabbath wrong. I mean, they could not deal with it. You can't, you can't argue with them when he's casting out an evil spirit because it's an evil spirit. Now, they do argue about it later. They say that it's because of evil that he can cast out evil. And Jesus does the whole house divided thing. It doesn't work for him. And, and, and a man healed of leprosy and a paralytic walking again. And you, it's just hard to argue with those things. But you mess with the Sabbath? That is a commandment. That is one of the 10. That's top 10. You've got the first three that have to do with that relationship with God. You have a five through 10 or the first three and then you have five through 10 has to do with that relationship with other people to be moral and thoughtful and to treat each other with dignity and respect and not to lie and not to cheat and not to steal and not to plow another man's field. Do not commit, commit adultery. Agriculture. Sorry, that was supposed to be a joke and it didn't work. It came out wrong. I'm trying to give you a break because it's going to get intense here for a second. But number four, keep the Sabbath day holy, for the Lord is holy. You don't do any work. Your wife doesn't do any work. Your manservant, your maidservant, your ox, lambs, doesn't matter, nothing, zero, zilch. You worship God and you rest. Why? Why? I mean, if God's top 10, worship God and God alone. Don't make any other images. We get that. How do we treat, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false tell. We get that. But why, why rest? I mean, there's a lot to do. Well, there's a church historian named Panneberg that says this. He says that, that the Sabbath is not there. The Sabbath is there for two reasons. One, and I'm not sure that he's got it all, but there's a piece of it. It's to not just give you a break from creation, but to give creation a break from you. 
The creation needs to breathe and it needs to rest. That's why you leave fields fallow on occasion. It needs to regenerate, restore. And so do you. See, God, at the beginning of time, when he created, if you notice, if you read Genesis 1 through 2, 1, um, you'll see that God created, and it says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. There was evening, there was morning the third day. And it goes on through the sixth day. And at the end of each day, he said, and it was tobe. It was good. Except for the sixth day, um, it was not good for Adam to be alone, so he made... Eve and, and, he, and he put them together and they completed one another. And he said, it was very good. Tob mayo, good, very. But on the seventh day, when it says that God rested from all of the work of creation, God is not tired. He's not weary. He's not exhausted. He doesn't need a nap. He's God. But he rested on the seventh day and he declared that it was holy. And there is no evening and morning the seventh day. And he doesn't declare it good. He declares it holy. And then after the three rebellions of humanity between the fall and the garden, when Adam and Eve said, not, my, not your will, but mine be done. And after no, everyone did nothing but evil in the world and God decided to give the world a bath and he set aside Noah and uh, gave the world a bath. And then later when, when after the flood and they all came together and they decided that they're gonna decide how to approach God. They're gonna decide how, to, how God is gonna be accessed. And they build this tower in Babel to go to God. And God said, you know what, that's it. Enough of you trying to dictate to me how life is supposed to be. I'm God, you're not. So he scrambled their language. He sent them all over the world. And he picked a ragamuffin man, Abram, to have a relationship with. He's, he said, I'm going to make through this man and all of his descendants, I am going to show the world that they have, these, this select group of people have access to the truth, not only access to the truth, but they're going to live under my umbrella and under my system of government. And everyone else will see that God is God because of who these people are. And one of the things that God instituted after he took him out of Egypt and with Moses and he gave him the 10 commandments, one of the things he said is once a day or once a week, I want you to do nothing. Seven times a year, I want you to celebrate and do nothing. Every seventh year, I want you to do nothing. And after seven years of seven years, then there's another year, I want you to do nothing. So that makes three years of no planting and harvesting. Every, every 50 years, 49, why? Why is rest important? Because the world runs seven days a week and humanity convinces ourselves that we can keep doing and doing and doing and doing and doing and thereby create our own little world, our own little system, our own little governance, and we don't need God. And God says, you need me and I will show the people how peaceful it is by setting a people aside and saying, your toil, you're just not that big a deal, folks. You, what you do is not that big a deal. I got this. And so the rest of the world will look at my people and go, oh, there's something different. They don't worship gods, they worship God. And they, they're good for nothing once a week. They're good for nothing seven times a year. They're good for nothing every seven years. They're good for nothing, nothing every seventh, seventh year. That was God's intention, is that we would do things differently so that the world would look and go, huh, there's something about those folks that's different and they see our good works and then they praise our father in heaven. The idea, the intention, the hope, God's plan, plan A was that the whole world will see who he is by his select elect group of people who have access to the one true God in a different way than everybody else. But what the Pharisees did and what we do too 
is we decided it's not about giving everyone else access through watching us to the Father. It's the Father loves us. He doesn't really love them. We're going to separate ourselves all the more. So they created more and more religious rules. One of them, uh, Sabbath rule is this. Um, I'm going to use American terminology for distance, but on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to travel. I was a Christian Reformed pastor for 21 years. You couldn't, you, you weren't supposed to fill up your car on Sunday unless you're on vacation, then it was okay. Or on your way to church, right? You couldn't go to Meyer unless you were getting a prescription, okay? I, and I'm not mocking, I, I ran into these little rules all the time, but they had them back then too. Like you could leave your house, you, you could not travel more than a mile away from your home on the Sabbath because that would be traveling. But if you have to go to synagogue, okay. So, but if you take something from your home, and you walk a mile, and you place that there, that becomes your home, you can go another mile, okay? It got weird. And I'm not saying that it was, it was of ill intent. They really believed that they were making themselves holy. Just like we tend to think that, that we're making ourselves holy. Folks, I'm gonna tell you something, and Jesus makes it really clear. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of any rules, and there's only 10. There are more rules in Yahtzee than there are in Christianity. And really, there's two. Love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Very few rules. But if we live like that, we're different. And if we recognize the fact that rest matters because it trusts God. You trust God when you say, I'm not that big a deal. Now there's more. Another time he went into a synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely. That's a, that's a pure motive on the Sabbath, right? They're being holy, looking for a way to accuse. And so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now this guy, only time I know of in the New Testament, if you find one, you let me know. Only time I know of in the New Testament where Jesus heals without being asked or without someone bringing someone to him. You think of the woman with the issue of blood. She didn't say anything, but she crawled through the, the crowd to touch his cloak. There's one time when Jesus takes, instead of being around a crowd, he takes a man who, was born, or who wasn't born blind, but man was blind, took him off to the side, spit on his eyes and healed him. This one, guy never asked for it, doesn't say anything. There's no comment from this man whatsoever. Jesus says, stand up in front of everyone. Shriveled hand. Unless he's an extrovert, that's an uncomfortable position to be put in. And then Jesus asked them, the religious people, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? The Greek word here for they remain silent is crickets chirped. Just kidding. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed. And we don't, like, we don't like this part about Jesus. We don't like the fact that Jesus is angry. Uh, when he's cleaning out the temple, we love the flipping the tables thing. You know, um, you turn my, house, my father's house into a den of thieves or robbers. Oh, yeah, you let him have it. But here, he's, he, he's asking them a question that they're not willing to answer, mainly because he's gonna teach them something. He's gonna convict them of something, much like Pastor Doug did with me on Thursday. And, and they don't like it. And so he, Jesus is angry. And if you were the God of the universe and, and you had said, up this idea that, that, that I want my people to trust me and thereby do nothing one day a week, seven times a year, once every seventh year, and, and, uh, and again every seventh, seventh year, and we just went, no, no. You think you'd be angry? Because we're destroying ourselves. 
He's not doing it. We're deciding we know better than you. And then we ask God to save us when we mess it up. Of course, God is angry at that. Jesus, God with skin on, is angry and deeply distressed. And he says to the man, and I don't know if he had, stretch out your hand. I don't think he's mad at the guy. But he says, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus on the Sabbath. Now, I want you to notice one other thing about that. They were so convinced that they were right, the Pharisees, that they connected, that they, 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 they allied with their enemies. Within the camp of Judaism, the Herodians were the worst of the worst because they claimed to be faithful, but they were all for King Herod, and they, wanted, they were willing to appease King Herod at any cost, no matter the cost to Israel. And the, the, the Pharisees, they, while they weren't the zealots, which were like insurrection, let's overthrow the government, they were like, no, it's the law of God, it's the law of God, it's the law of God. If we don't want Rome, we want God. We don't want what God we want. Oh, we don't want Rome, we want God. God. Rome is not our God, Caesar is not our God. God is our God. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees were always battling one another, but not now. Because they both see that Jesus is going to take the upside down, cracked and bent reality that they've created, that they think is right, and he's going to turn it upside, right side up, and he's going to heal the crack, and he's going to make it back to plan A, walking, talking, knowing, and loving a relationship with the God of the universe, not hobbling, paralyzing, and bondage-inducing religion. So what? Let me ask you a couple of things. Do you have religious conviction that you've created? And you'll know it mostly by what expectations you have for others that they need to do to assure you that they're holy enough or that they're faithful. Grandparents, parents with your children, are there certain things that, that, that you've decided let us know if someone is a quote-unquote good Christian? What about in your own life? I've been a Christian since 1989, and to my current knowledge, today was the first time I ever asked a group of people to pray for me. You think that I don't have some kind of rule set up in me that if I just endure and I'm stronger than others, that God will be pleased with me? I don't know what it is exactly, but I'm going to find out. Because Jesus takes on every power in the gospel according to Mark, every power that hobbles, paralyzes, or places in bondage one of his or many of his or a group of his people. And he wants to release you from the same kind of bondage. See, the Pharisees thought this was about the rules, William Willimon says it this way. They, they believed that they were arguing about the rules and Jesus set them straight. It's not about the rules. It's about who rules. So tonight, when your toothpaste hits the toothbrush or, and that's about two minutes, right? That's how long. There's nothing, no one can look cool when they're brushing their teeth. Get the little thing coming down. <laughs> but you do look in the mirror most of the time. For that two minutes when you're brushing your teeth or when, you're, uh, when your head hits the pillow tonight. And if you're a side sleeper or stomach sleeper, just roll over on your back. 
Look up to the ceiling, keep your eyes open. And I don't think there's anything, it's just so easy when you close your eyes at night and you're laying in your bed and you start to pray to wake up the next morning and go, amen, Lord. And then you feel guilty, right? But I want you to, I want to give, give you a little picture. If you, I've got a new granddaughter, I can't hold her yet, but if I do, when I do, and she might be walking and talking by the time I meet her, but when, I, when I'm holding her and she's going on, ah, and then, and then, and then, and then I want to touch, and then, and then, and she, she falls asleep. I'm not going to slap her awake. How dare you fall asleep? How disrespectful. God adores you when you fall asleep talking to him. But there are times when we need to say, Lord, search me. So tonight, if there's some religious conviction you've set up for yourself or for others, ask God to take it on, to show you, to reveal it. And when he shows you or reveals it, confess it, repent of it, and then say, Lord, what would you like to replace this with? Because this is religion or rules and not faithfulness and relationship. I guarantee you, he always wants to play, replace it with faithfulness and relationship. And one more little heed this warning. It is always better, always, to ask God to show you than to wait for him to do it on his own. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord instead of wait for him to humble you. Does that make sense? To bend my knee and my will to the Lord says to him, I don't know what I'm doing, but you do. Waiting for him to let you run the course until you bonk your head against that wall too many times for you to fall down and go, help me, Lord. That hurts a lot more than saying, Lord, I need you. Reveal to me what's controlling me if it's not you. And I'm not making a bigger deal out of this than Mark is. Religion and legalism can kill. But Jesus saves. And that's why he asks, what's lawful? To save life or to kill? to do good or through evil. He's asking you the same thing. What is it in your life that is not producing the, the fruit, not fruits, but fruit of the spirit? Because I guarantee you, anything you're practicing that doesn't make, that doesn't produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control, I miss one, I always miss one. It's not of God. If it's not producing that in you, it's not of God. And he wants to take that on and get it out. Do you want him to? That's the question. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. Thank you for Mark. Thank you for Jesus and Mark who's just on a mission and nothing's getting in his way. And thank you, Lord, that so early in this gospel you show us that even our own attempts at appeasing you as deity can actually paralyze us and place us in bondage. But you want to free us. You tell us that everyone who's weary and heavily laden to come to you and you will give us rest. Remind us, Lord, that it's okay to be good for nothing because that means we're trusting you. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen.